2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Greetings, listeners, and welcome to the Recall This Book. My name is Elizabeth Ferry, and I'm really delighted to be here with my co-host, John Plass. Hey, John.
0: Oh, hey, Elizabeth. It's great to be here.
1: And with George Caligeris, who's joining us today. George is a poet. He teaches... Uh, poetry and classics in translation at Suffolk University and he's the author of several books including Winthropos which is recently out with the Louisiana State University Press and which we'll be hearing from and talking about today. Welcome George. Great to be here. So uh, for today's episode we've decided that we're going to kind of go back and forth between reading poetry and talking a little bit about it um, to give as much space to George's wonderful poems as possible. So George, would you like to get us started?
2: Sure. Um, uh, Winthropos, the title of the book is from the Greekified name that my immigrant father gave to the town where I grew up. Uh, He and his brothers had a little grocery store in the town. And there are a number of poems that are situated in the grocery store. So I'm going to start with one of those. one of those poems, and it's called Peponia. Honeydew melons swelling their shipping crates, kept cool in the damp cellar dark of my father's store. Out of sight, but never so far out of mind, that every so often a crowbar's iron talon couldn't pry open their plywood lids suspending the nails like fangs if ripeness is all it was all in the way i saw the way my father cradled peponia turning them over slowly enough to keep the luminous pallor of their moist complexions fresh still bright and the long look back through the cellar dark all in the way He'd never say what he saw, but set them gently back down in their wooden crates. Then every so often another aura would hover there in the afterglow of a dangling bulbs, interrogating glare, which still can make my father's sisters appear, crouching together before a crumbling wall. I mean in that black and white snapshot my mother kept on her perfume dresser with its oval mirror, and those open, kerchiefed faces staring back from the open fields late in the 1930s, as if a crowbar angled into the dark were leverage enough to release the fragrant, opulent sheen of those who never cross over the water, but hover near whenever I say Peponia, honeydew melons swelling their shipping crates.
0: Mm. Yeah, thanks, George. Is it okay if we put the um, poems themselves up on our page so that listeners can read it? Sure, that would be great. I think that'd be great too, because it was just just fantastic to be reading along with you and, and hearing how you managed that amazing enjambment, those line breaks, where the meaning kind of falls over from one line to the next. It's a or, crucial point. You know?
1: mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's a couple of lines I wanted to, to talk about and hear you talk about. Um, I mean, in the first place, just having the first, the first line and the last line be the same has this gives this kind of rounded quality to the, to the poem. Yeah. Uh, which is as all round about as the rounded- melons roundedness. yeah okay. um, And I mean I just love the the emphasis of the word and the shape of the word, right I mean I mean it's clear that the this word Peponia is itself so kind of opulent and smooth and round. Um, it reminds me a little bit I don't know if you guys ever read, uh, Eudora Welty's essay in becoming a writer about the word moon. And she describes when she sort of discovered she wanted to yeah. be a writer and she, she felt the word moon, like a grape in her mouth. Um, and it so uh, just wonderful. reminds me. Yeah. A lot about that. Can you, can you say a little bit about, cause you do this in a number of, of poems about choosing a word and making a, making a Greek word, what kind of work the word does? in a yeah, poem like it's,
2: this it's a, it's a it's a central point in in in, in a number of my poems and I, I i don't know some words um it was the musical quality and it's a sort of talismanic power that certain words had and mm-hmm. and it was always um you know in the house where i grew up it was you know the language was moving back and forth between greek and english and mm-hmm. and how those decisions were made um, when to use a Greek word, when to use an English word. I think often had to do with the musicality, and mm. and um, I, I I have another poem where, uh, and this is exactly what happened is I came home from school, and it was the first week of school. I was in the first grade, and I I held up a fork and I held up a spoon, and and I I said, well, why do you call this one spoon and this one pirungi, mm. to my mother. And, and she of course she had no answer to that, mm. but I'm sure mm. it had to do something with the in my my childhood mind the the peruni had something to do with the prongs and, right. and there was a very musical sound, so I felt that mm-hmm. you know that the poems could move back and forth between those languages and 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 try to sort of activate an original emotion, which was mm-hmm. um, in the case of my father um you know, not knowing as a kid much about his history, except that he came from a tiny village in Arcadia, way up in the mountains. And
1: mm-hmm. there was
2: a kind of, you know, I knew there was some kind of unspoken trauma about it.
1: Like mm-hmm. what
2: happened to his mother? Um, mm-hmm. How come we never saw her? And, and you know, I didn't know the Nazis had gotten to that village, but mm-hmm. I knew there was 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 something, um that made him melancholy but very mm. always very tender
1: and mm. that came
2: you know the, the melons was something that had to be handled so delicately because they bruised easily
1: mm-hmm.
2: and 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 um elizabeth you used the word rounded and you know that the um they're faceless but they become like the faces of the sisters and mm-hmm. the sisters faces and the kerchiefs around it and there's an oval mirror and so there's some kind of echo of of yes imagery as well as you know that there's a kind of echo chamber in that word yes the open kerchief
1: faces staring back
2: yeah yeah
1: Yeah. and maybe even a sense of um openness but there's something secret or not secret in a kind of um stealthy sense but but some reticence also.
2: Yeah, no, I think reticence is 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 is, is precisely right. Uh, my father was very reticent, and, mm-hmm. and there was something secret, or maybe even you know, there's this a kind of um, one thing I like about this poem is that it it out of that darkness there, there comes this luminousness, and it's mysterious mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. me as a uh, you know recalling it as a kid, but the um, and I I, I think, I, I think in some ways that that you know what John mentioned about you know seeing the lines on the page that that tenth line, when when I when I get to that um, fifth stanza, to keep the luminous pallor of their moist and then line break complexions, you know suddenly for mm-hmm. a second that that there's like a face there in, yes. in fresh and. And right there, because it's iambic pentameter, um, complexion's fresh. There's still three more Mm -hmm. beats, still bright in the long look back. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And and I was particularly happy with that because it brings it back into the cellar dark. But something has come out of, been unlocked from those wooden crates. And it's in both the image and the, the way the meter springs over the line break. I
1: hope. Yeah. Uh, and to that, that's next wonderful.
0: Couple yeah. Of... Well, I was just thinking about like, there's all different writers I admire who are kind of can be where the poetry can be enigmatic on the page, like incredibly visual and present. And yet there's a sense of mystery. And some of those writers, I don't know, I guess I was thinking of Hart Crane for some reason. It, you just feel like you're always going to be looking, like you're going to keep staring down into the depths. And he's always mm-hmm. like one seven syllable word ahead of you or something. But then William Carlos Williams, I, I think, you know, I feel like don't they call him an imagist poet? You know, that I think yes. he's that there is that sense of presence, you know, you've you've rendered it in the word in in, you know, often those are incredibly short poems. And yet there's still something elusive about it. Like that's, right. uh, you know.
1: And it's not the same elusiveness as saying, well, what does the poem mean or something like that, right? right. Which is exactly. a, right. A, kind of a non question. Can,
0: can yeah. I ask about the word aura in that context, George? Because it's not italicized like Paponia, but because you're kind of primed by Paponia, I didn't read it just as like the ordinary visual. I mean, does it, or are you thinking it does aura mean something more than just like the ordinary visual aura, like afterglow or something, or is it? Well, I,
2: yeah, I I think it's, it's, um, you know, the way that aura is at one side of the line and afterglow is at another, that they're, they're kind of reflecting off each other. Yeah. And there is this Mm -hmm. sort of the child's first, I think, experience whenever those naked bulbs would go off in the dark, you know, there'd still be an aura for a second.
0: Yeah. And mm-hmm. I
2: think, you know, I don't, I, I don't know exactly what the interrogating glare is, but I, you know, I, I, I think as an adult, it takes me into some of the 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 aura is the aura of trauma, yeah. Uh, that's mm-hmm. in that interrogating mm-hmm. glare. It's like an interrogation lamp.
0: Yeah. But mm-hmm. I, but it's yeah.
2: it's it's more at that point it's more the adult speaker translating what. To the child was just a kind of um, strange, uh, maybe slightly ominous aura.
0: Yeah. So I, it, it has yeah. a
2: range of, I guess, it has a range of radiance, you might say.
0: Yeah. You know, through it. Maybe that's actually a good transition if you were going to read uh, yeah. just just my imagination. Yeah. What one of the things I was saying before that I love about that poem is that question of the the memory that existed back in the younger the younger you, and then you're yeah. returning mm-hmm. to it as an older you and yeah you know, I always think of Charles Dickens's great expectations there, where it's like old Pip and young Pip are kind of uh, there mm-hmm. together in the voice. Um, anyway, yeah, like and I,
2: I and I think that that you' the point you're making is when we get to the end of the poem, that's explicitly what happens where i I hope at the end of the poem you're in both pla I'm in both places at once.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Um, I'm younger and older, and both events are happening. And it also um thanks for for uh, mentioning this poem too uh elizabeth had picked out the Piponia, and you picked up this one and this one allows me to talk about the town as a town it's yeah. not necessarily connected with the greek world at all yeah um, but it is connected with um the very large jewish community that was there when i was growing up in the highlands part of town mm. and and, and there was a poetry bookstore there yeah. and that's where i really started um to start being a serious reader of poetry. And they had a wonderful community. And um, there was a young guy, a beautiful young guy from that community who was a wonderful playwright. And um, he was older than me. He was a few years older than me, but he was kind of a, you know, a star in the senior class, as you'll see in the poem. And um, um, well, I'll, I'll read the poem yeah. and we can talk about it. Mm.
0: And- and can I just, I'm just going to encourage readers who have access to the show notes to to look to to look as George reads. I think it's a great, you know, to have that double effect if you can.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Just my imagination.
2: I was back in Winthrop, driving through the town where I grew up. The radio's off, but passing by the brand new high school, its vintage Motown comes blaring through the Bose speakers in Neil Shapiro's Yellow Camaro. The top is down, it's 1971. We're cruising the beach. The great temptations are singing as if they could drown and the waves of what keeps running away with them. I love the way they stretch out the crucial noun, imagination. The girls on their towels are lying face up or face down. Their skin is golden brown. Neil is the president of the senior class as well as the drama club. The sun is a crown on his wavy, luxuriant hair. Not one of our classmates is yet a shade in their underworld cap and gown. As beauty walks by and he sings, I hear a tender rhapsody, but in, now slowing down, reality, she doesn't even know me. Then speeding up to flee her laughing frown. Mm. But no fleeing my yellow fibrosis, mellifluous term for the terminal cancer that never made a sound as it pulsed to the tribal beat. Of his chosen blood and now there's no one around except the renowned smoking robinson and the miracles intoning their syrupy scolding tears of a clown they call pagliacci And genial meal as white as a ghost as he waits for the vials to fill the town conducting a blood drive the need for Ashkenazi Jews, the Mayo Clinic, the music of Motown, the reel-to-reel cassette not yet obsolete. The canvas top on the yellow Camaro is down. We're passing the Neil Shapiro Center for the Performing Arts. He's Emerson College bound.
0: Yeah. It- I was also, I was starting to sort of try to formulate a question about whether this was, um, whether this is kind of the power of poetry to do this, to pull things together, or whether it's just that this is what we all live in. We live in memory, you know, we live in, uh, you know, we walk down a street and we think about, you know, the people who used to walk down with it. I was just visiting my parents and I, I still realized, you know, I still call the house two doors down, you know, Mrs. Walker's house, even though, ah, you know, she's been dead since 1982. And um, mm. so, so I guess it's a question. I was going to ask you the question, George, is kind of like poetry versus, you know, the reality of memory, but, but you were mentioning the music and in a way, the lyric quality of the music is what kind of cuts between those things, right? Because music is always like that, that it just, brings you back um,
1: mm-hmm.
2: yeah and it's um, you know it has that you know sort of freezes the you know it preserves the moment in amber
1: mm-hmm.
2: and and for that reason um, I, you know I think it it also um, has within it you know it also speaks to the passage of time and the sorrow that's there. Uh, there's a great mm-hmm. moment in the in the Odyssey where um, Odysseus' son Telemachus uh, finds um, his father has not come home in in 20 years, and he finds, um, he gets to the palace of Menelaus, and Menelaus is there with Helen, and um, Helen brings in a bowl of wine that she spikes with a magic potion that comes from Egypt, and it allows them to, to um, talk about the past without weeping. Mm. And earlier in the, in the Odyssey, um, Telemachus's mother is walking down the, the steps and she hears the bard playing a song. And she says, tell him to stop playing that song. It's too sad. Mm. I can't bear the song. Uh, it brings back too many memories. So that I think poetry both you know, it has both of those instincts going. Um, that the song mm-hmm. is going to bring back the sorrow, and you yeah. know, it's 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 uh, it's it's something that instinctively um, is is painful, and, and mm-hmm. the verse is going to cut both ways. I hope if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, but can yeah. I actually can I follow up with that then? So, does it mean for you for your own poetic practice? Does it have to be your stories, your past, your memory? that are kind of that crystal around which the feeling can congeal, you know, because like the example of the odyssey is such a great one to think with because those that I feel like the sorrow of, of, you know, of of Helen is so real for all of us, even though we don't even think she existed, but we still feel it, but, you know, there's a poetic Mm -hmm. practice. that's all about, you know, imagined people who's the poet can make, those lives and those crystals come alive, but your poetry in, in this book at least is so wound up in your own, um, like the, 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 the original, mm-hmm. the, the ground level is your own stories, your own past.
2: Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting way to think about it. I mean, I, I think that I, I try, um, you know, because I have, you know, this this wonderful resource, which is the Greek, and it leads immediately to the classical past or to the ancient past, then I always try to have, you know, try not to exploit that, but to find ways in which it, 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 um, it has a, um, um, some kind of intertwined way of, of, of unfolding with my own experience. Um, I don't want to use it simply as a metaphor. Or simply as a way of enriching or embellishing. Um, I, in my previous book, I, there was quite a bit of material on Pausanias, who was a, mm. a, a second-century common era um, prose writer who wrote this terrific, you know, um, multi-volume uh, compilation of his walking around Greece. And because he spent a lot of time in Arcadia and Sparta, which is my parents' regions, mm. I felt I could, you know, connect that with stories I heard from them. And and that so that was a way of 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 I, I think, you know, keeping it from being a kind of, which 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 can be beautifully done. I mean, there's plenty of classical poems that are are simply about the the those Helen and those figures from the Odyssey. But I thought I had a you know, a resource here that was rich mm. and that I could connect it to my own life. And it would be the modern Greek world that activated Greek-American mm. world.
0: Yeah.
1: It it gives a... What you're saying now gives an interesting angle on the title of the poem, right? Which is from the, the Temptation ah, song, obviously. Wonderful point. Yeah, that's um, terrific. But, you know, it... The sort of way in which the poem is your imagination running away with you, and there's the only—that's the only place where Neil Shapiro can drive his Camaro, and also this ah, Neil Shapiro Center for the Arts can be together, right? That's beautiful.
2: That's—I hadn't thought of that, but that's a beautiful insight, Elizabeth. Um, and I, you know, just thinking about how you know this poem doesn't have anything Greek about it, but Neil is kind of a Greek hero. I mean, mm-hmm. he's, he's kind of like a young Achilles. I mean, he's beautiful. And I think it's kind of humorous in a way. He's not only the president of the senior class, but he's the president of the drama club, too. <laughs> yeah, and his right. life is, you know, he's sort of enacting that as I'm riding yeah. in his car with him. Uh, yeah. And the, and you the know, sun the is a is, crown
1: on his wavy luxurious. Yeah, he's hair. like he's yeah.
2: crowned, like he has a laurel wreath, of, but which yeah. is all, you know, dangerous in the Greek world because he's too bright in a way. and and the gods never liked that.
1: Right, right.
2: So
0: can I, I'll I'll just tell you guys a little bit what I'm wrestling with here is that I'm, you know, because I'm mostly a fiction person, not a poetry person. And nowadays, there's this really interesting, I don't know if it's a debate going on, but a kind of tussle about what people call auto fiction, or the way in which, you know, the fiction that comes out of what is transparently the writer's life, and so then there's mm. people get on different sides of the battle lines about whether you're supposed to be writing fiction about you right. or whether you're supposed to be making up. <laughs> and and I realize you just help you guys are just helping me realize how different that is on the lyric poetry side because it's not as mm-hmm. if you know George it's not as if you're just holding up a mirror here to your own you know to your own interior you're doing something where, you know, you're getting at these sorrows of the world or the ways that right. the past comes back at us, but it almost seems as if it has to um, be rooted through your own experiences. Otherwise, you know, what would you have, how could you ground those feelings if you didn't ground them, in, yeah. you know, things that triggered your own your own emotions? Yes. Yeah.
2: No, I think that's right. I think that gets you back to the source of your own feeling.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But also that, that, that those feelings have a universality to them yeah. also,
2: right? Yes. Yeah. I, I, I always love that Yeats said something to the effect that, you know, the private was deeper than the personal. And yeah. that mm-hmm. if he got down to the private, he could hit a common root that everyone felt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, yeah. the root of a great tree.
0: But I was going to ask, you know, George, as we sort of, you know, take the turn and head for home. Can you can you talk a little bit about how this book fits with your earlier books? Like, do you see it? You know, is it continuous with them? Do you see yourself tackling something new or different? Yeah, How do you?
2: No, it's a great question. I, I do see it continuous because the other book was Guide to Greece. And it was, I think, you know, had more classical material because of Pausanias. And I think it had material that I, I sort of felt like I was laying a groundwork. And Winthropos was, and, and, you know, the the other book, as I mentioned before, about Pausanias, he traveled all over Greece, different provinces. And this book is like about a single province, yes. but it's my town, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so then, I, I you know, I, I think that this, I mean, I thought of this as a trilogy. Uh, I mean, I thought mm. of this back when I was writing Guide to Greece, that there could be one more that, mm. um, you know, unlike Winthropus, which is mainly focused on the town, that it, it, it spreads out, you know, and, and I mean, the word that comes to my mind is magna gracia, which is the kind of diaspora, the, the greater Greece, it doesn't mean anything, yeah. you know, there's nothing, nothing heightened about the magna, it's just yeah. a spreading. But if the book could spread even further, yeah. uh, maybe, you know, into my memory, um, as well as into other places, yeah. but there would be a third one that was yeah. was had didn't have either of those two kind of groundings in them.
0: I always mm-hmm. thought that Magna Graecia specifically meant the southern Italian uh, settlements. It means it does just... it. Oh, okay. It,
2: no, it does it does mean that, but it 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 comes to um, I think for the for the for the Greek experience, it comes yeah. to mean uh the other um, the other diasporic,
0: you know, that's um, fascinating. Yeah, uh, travels
2: mm-hmm. and, and, and yeah, re, re, at least you know, at, at least I think in in terms of of of, 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 of the imagination.
0: Yeah. Uh, my way of thinking about That's it. That's a great title. Cause there's so many Br- there's so many Irish words for that too. I mean, you get, you know, West Ireland or you know, yeah. that that way of expressing that that Irishness isn't really located in Ireland anymore. Mm-hmm.
1: So, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah, that dislocating it more. I think locating is the there's no locus is is all at different
1: places. It's sort yeah. of a diasporic yeah. imagination. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: That's great. Um, Maybe I if I could that read, <laughs>
2: if I could read one more, please. And and I wanted to to read it in, in dedication to Elizabeth's uh, father David, who has been such a great friend and mentor to me, and and is a master poet um, and and really our our greatest practitioner of iambic pentameter poetry. And almost all the well, all the ones that I read are iambic pentameter. But mm-hmm. I've talked to him quite a bit about this poem, and he. Asked me if I would read it. And it doesn't, it's not connected to any of the kind of ideas we talked about before, but maybe it is connected to all of them in some bigger way. Mm. Uh, Birds and cemeteries. It must be the shade that draws them, or else the grass. And it seems they always alight away from their flocks alone. It's so quiet here. You can't help but hear. Their talons clink as they hop from headstone to headstone. Their sharp, inquisitive beaks cast quizzical glances. The lawn is mown. The gate is always open. The names engraved on the stones and the uplifting words below the names, a as ever, but almost never even a chirp from the birds let alone a wild shriek as they perch on a tomb. And then they fly away, looking as if they couldn't remember why it was they came. But we're doing what our souls are supposed to do on the day we die, if the birds could read the words. And this is the last poem in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the connections with David, I could say this for a minute, is those lines, the line is, the lawn is mown, the gate is always open.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and in David's great translation of the Aeneid, which is really his own great long poem in English, um, there are some lines about where Anchises tells Aeneas that uh, um, oh, oh, the lines appear anyway in the underworld. Um, I don't recall if Anchises says it or the Sybil, but that the, um, you know, it, the way down to hell is easy. It's mm-hmm. getting back out. That's that's mm-hmm. uh, the difficult thing. So the, the gate that there's gates that are always open in the cemetery. Yeah. Uh, I I also hear
1: poem. him in um, towards the end of the poem. Then they fly away, looking as if they couldn't remember why it was they came. But uh, we're doing what our souls are supposed to do on the day we die. If the birds could read the words. That kind of colloquialism. Yes. Right? Yes. Um, yeah. And also, and also the the and I, I, without being a scholar of epic, looking as if to me feels like a sort of a moment like as in an epic where you say, you know, the, the epic simile is about to begin. Yeah, the simile, yeah. <laughs> right? and no, exactly,
2: exactly yeah. right. That simile yeah. and and the way David can do it with 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 you know those commonplace phrases, those colloquialisms. Yeah. That keep it an American poem, Um,
1: yeah.
2: And these these birds are, you know, they're flying to heaven, like our souls are supposed to fly to heaven,
1: which is, you know, some of the uplifting words on the tombs are saying. Right, but at the same time, it it feels like a very Caligari poem. That. as well. <laughs> but
0: there's also, so, there's something about the rhythm of it too. And maybe the or, ordinary language quality it actually reminds me of Seamus Heaney. And I don't know if you have anything to say mm-hmm. to that, George, but I, like, I was thinking of that poem Bogland, which is, you know, a, also a poem with a lot of magnitude, since it's about this image of Ireland itself as, you know, the wet center is bottomless, but it's very ordinary, like the language, you know, every the, the sort of phrasing is just like ordinary observation ordinary observation but mm. there's a there's something about the rhythm of it that sounds like like him to me
2: yeah no i think he's been a great influence on me too and and certainly um uh, he's a tremendous poet and and his work as is, 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 you know his his um you know his his sense of of being both in a, a kind of um you know Less educated family, much less educated family than he uh, experienced and and yet you know using that that farm material as well as uh, he uses quite a bit of the classical world as well. so he was very important in that way and and also mm-hmm. the way that you know yeah. I think that that bog land and and the bog people and the pump, uh, the well, yeah. the yeah. way that ordinary objects become uh, so mm-hmm. elemental and and um, you know what elizabeth said before universality uh, uh, they speak to a, a you know a, a wide range of of of, of, of poignant experiences yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: yeah, that's helpful yeah, that makes sense yeah.
1: so George, uh, I think we'll we'll say goodbye for today and just thank you so deeply for. For reading and for for giving us the opportunity to talk through the poems poems well, thanks together. Thanks so much. It's been a
2: delight and 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 what uh, terrific questions and terrific attention. Yeah. Thank uh, you, George. So yeah. thanks yeah. enormously.
1: Yeah. No thanks. We call this book is the brainchild of John Plotz and Elizabeth Ferry. It's affiliated with Public Books and under normal times has been recorded and edited in the Media Lab of the Brandeis Library. Um, Our music comes from a song by Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy, Fly Away. Sound editing is by Naomi Cohen and production assistance, including website design and social media is done by Miranda Peary. Mark Delello oversees and advises on all tech matters, and we appreciate the support of Dean Dorothy Hodgson and the Mandel Center for the Humanities at Brandeis. We always want to hear from you with your comments, criticisms or suggestions for future episodes. You can email us directly, or you can contact us via social media and our website. Finally, if you enjoyed today's show, please be sure to write a review or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You may be interested in checking out past episodes, um, including episodes with uh, wonderful poets such as Sean Hill and a conversation between David Ferry, who's already been invoked, and the poet Roger Reeves. Um, So thank you for listening, and we will see you next time.